0: Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris, and this is episode 40 of Civilly Speaking brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today's June 27, 2018, and I'm here with our guest, Mark Para from Cincinnati. Mark, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking.
1: Thank you, Sean. Good to be here and enjoy listening to your radio voice. (laughs) Thank
0: you. I've been working (laughs) on it. So our topic today generally is medical negligence claims in the state of Ohio. And I know you handle your fair share of those. Tell us what you've seen, for example, as far as nurse practitioners and their involvement with the treatment these days.
1: Yeah, I think one of the most disturbing trends that we're seeing is the use or maybe even overuse of nurse practitioners. And for those that don't know, nurse practitioners are nurses who get additional education, and they're then allowed to practice similar to a physician, but they're supposed to do so under the supervision and oversight of a physician. And what we're seeing is that nurse practitioners sometimes are used very well in family doc offices, sometimes in emergency rooms where they're seeing lower acuity types of patients or patients that don't have significant illnesses. But the alarming thing that that we're seeing is that they're being put into places and seeing patients where you don't know what you don't know, so to speak. In other words, they may think that it's a lower acuity patient, and in reality, it's someone who is very sick. We've got a case right now set to go to trial later this year where it actually involves two nurse practitioners on two separate visits. Our client was a a young mother uh, in her 30s, at least that still seems young to me, but in her 30s, mother of four, married, and she went into an urgent care after church on a Sunday and was not feeling well. And they basically diagnosed her with headaches, sent her home with no medication, went home, came back in, either the next day or two days later, saw an urgent care in her family doctor's practice. And this is all part of the same health care system. So they have the files and the medical records available to one another. See that nurse practitioner, and it was much of the same. Even though when she was in there, her oxygen levels had dropped below normal levels, and they had been normal at the previous visit. Even though her blood pressure was now low, she was hypotensive. Even though she had tachycardia, a fast heartbeat on this visit, they ended up diagnosing her with a cluster headache and sending her home. The only thing they tested for was the flu and she passed that flu test. Well, the end of the story is that the following day she comes back to the emergency room, this time via ambulance, and by this time she's so septic that she's not salvageable. She actually had pneumonia on both of the visits and according to the defense expert, and you may get a kick out of this, at least one defense expert says that when she was being seen by this nurse practitioner on the second visit, that she was no longer salvageable. You know, No matter what they did for treatment at that point, she was not going to survive. Their other expert though is opining that, that it was okay to just diagnose her with a cluster headache and send her home. So you've got one saying she's so sick that she's not going to make it no matter what you do. And you've got the other one saying, no, it was okay to miss it. So. We're seeing cases like that, I've got another one that involves meningitis with a number of emergency room visits, all of them being handled by nurse practitioners and again it's just kind of you don't know what you don't know, they're going in there, they're assuming that it's just regular neck pain and in reality it's a that case again a young woman, young mother in her 20s that actually had a spinal epidural abscess which developed into meningitis throughout the continuum of all of these visits and they're simply thinking she just has a stiff neck, and nobody's doing any further investigation. They're not recognizing that there are signs that they're missing, that they should be following up on, and there's no real supervision from a doc that's preventing tragedies from happening. So I think on the one hand, you've got nurse practitioners that are potentially making medicine a little bit more affordable. In reality, what's probably happening is it's just making it more profitable for the hospitals and hospital systems, and there are positives to that decreased cost. But the real negative and the real danger that we're starting to see with, with alarming frequency is that they're treating these nurse practitioners as if they're physicians, and they're not. They don't have the schooling. They're not going for four years of medical school. They're not going through a residency, a fellowship, things that, all, that the physicians are all doing. And because of that, I think the, the quality of care is is really being compromised.
0: Well, and it's remarkable when, you know, when you say, these people are going to the emergency room. It's not like they're going to their family doc. They're going to the right place. That, that can't be right. Exactly.
1: It's, uh, in fact, you know, those two cases that I just gave illustrations of, You know, it involves ERs on multiple visits. It involves urgent care and involves the family doc. They're, they're being used everywhere. They're being used by the, the obstetricians. They're seeing women that are coming in in the early stages of pregnancy. Luckily, we haven't had any any cases where it's been a nurse practitioner that has committed a, a horrible mistake or error in following, you know, a pregnant, pregnant mother. But I know they're being used with great frequency there as well. I mean, it really, they're, they're creeping into every facet of the medical practice, the medical world.
0: Well, you mentioned defense experts earlier. Talk to us about dealing with defense experts and and the importance of discrediting them?
1: In the last six months, I've tried two medical malpractice, medical negligence cases in Cincinnati, both against the same lawyer. A very good lawyer has become a good friend, and he does a really, really nice job. And I can tell you in the first, the first trial, which did not end the way it was supposed to end, he had two experts in the the first expert took the stand and this was a, a case involving the death of a baby and it was a, a case where a C section should have been recommended, at a minimum recommended, if not required, hours and hours before it was finally suggested by a nurse. It involved really a, a doctor that was not a good witness at all. They didn't even call him back in their case in chief on redirect. They didn't they didn't bring him back to the stand because he had done so poorly. But it was a case where there was no literature in There wasn't any literature because you wouldn't subject any laboring mothers to a study where you you say, all right, you've had a failure to progress in your labor. In other words, you've halted, you're not dilating any further, but we're just going to have you keep pushing and pushing until your uterus bursts. You're just not going to have that type of study done. So there's no literature in terms of what the specific risks are, as you go beyond three hours with a failure to progress or four, five, six, in this case it was close to twelve hours. So there was no literature that you could really use to impeach the experts. Well the first expert that they called on the stand was a well known obstetrician, had written a lot from down south, had a little bit of a southern draw, and you know, tried to play it up with the jury and be very charming. And quite frankly he was. He just kept lying and you know, you can't stand up and say, Hey, you're lying because nobody's going to believe you over the doc. But I felt somewhat comfortable because I thought, all right, even though he's just absolutely lying about this stuff, I've got their next expert coming up, and I should be able to impeach the first guy through the second guy. Well, as you might suspect, not only did they not recall their doctor, defendant doctor, to the stand, but they did not call that second expert to the stand either, which was a smart move on their part. So the jury was left with two very different stories, one from our expert, and one from their expert, their expert had better paper. He had been published over and over, like I said, had been the president of ACOG and a president of a number of other OB organizations. And, you know, at the end of the day, jury was out, well, they were out eight hours, came back and said they were deadlocked. And as truly was a case we should have won. The defense lawyer was begging the insurance company to come up with more money and was really worried about what the, the result was going to be. But the judge sent him back after the deadlock. And as a side note, never leave a criminal defense lawyer on your jury because they went back and this criminal defense lawyer, who I thought would be good because I figured he would be liberal, which he is, went back and absolutely crucified our case and got a couple of folks to flip over. It was a 4-4 split at that point. He got two to flip over and we lost 6-2. to two. So in speaking with him afterwards, it sounded like they simply thought that that Defense expert, because of all of his articles and the training that he had, was a better expert than the one we had put forth. And it was just really very frustrating. So, the the last trial I had against the same lawyer, he had a number of experts again, which we see in pretty much every case where they're just doubling and tripling up experts and going with the one that, you know, is doing the best in depositions. I figured that he was going to probably try and call a number of them. And so, in opening, there was one in particular that had given very favorable statements and favorable testimony that conflicted with the other, at least two of the other experts that he had listed. So in opening, I went to play the video of those experts, which I've done in the past, but I got an objection, and despite what the rule says, that you can use depositions for any purpose under the rules of evidence, you know, the the objection was sustained. Nonetheless, what the judge allowed me to do was to summarize the testimony from that expert so I used the transcript and then basically in front of the jury so they could see that it was coming straight from this deposition. I basically said, hey, you know, expert Dr. Dr. Blow is going to tell you A, B, and C, and then talked about how that conflicted with what they were going to hear from their other experts. And throughout the course of the trial, they, the other experts that they called really did a poor job. They changed their testimony. They just weren't believable at all. And that one came back, and the, the jury got that one right. Unlike the first case, so it's an, it's one of those things that we all know that if you can discredit the the defendants' experts, you're obviously going to going to be ahead of the game. But I can tell you, in that trial, by the fifth day or so of trial, when they put their experts on and they tried to to change their stories, the jury had had enough. You could see them visibly shaking their heads, making faces, and, and crossing arms. So if there's no literature out there to beat folks up on, and they've got multiple experts. Maybe just another reminder to to those of us that do this in any type of case with experts that, hey, we can use these depositions. Most of the time we can use the video with with more lenient judges. But even if you can't, there's ways to get in that testimony to show that they've got inconsistencies and really are not going to be believable in the case.
0: I never understood the objection that you can't use a video deposition in opening when the jury's going to see it anyway.
1: I don't get it either. Now, the the video depot was not a a trial depot. It was a discovery depot, but but I agree with you, because if they deviate from that testimony, you're going to play it and impeach them. And they should be seeing, even if that witness is coming live, they should be seeing the exact same testimony if they're being honest. So I don't get it either, and, and normally I don't even get an objection on it. I think in this case I got it because he knew that he had trouble with some inconsistencies among his experts. And he wanted to try and keep it out. And I, actually, when he had his other experts on the stand, I then got the deposition in through them also when they would, would give their testimony. I was going back and saying, well, do you know that Dr. Blow, I mean, you reviewed the, the depositions in this case. Yes, you were careful in your review. Yes. Did you see Dr. Blow said X, Y, Z? And I was able to do that over objection. The judge let that in. So I think there, there are ways to get it in, even, even if not an opening, but I think it was crucial for that case that so we do at an opening. And, and uh, it's always nice when the defense gives you a gift with experts who who not only lie, but they at least lie inconsistent with previous testimony. Then then we're able to do something about it. When they just plain lie, it's a little bit
0: more difficult. And you've been talking, obviously, medical negligence cases here generally, and, and obviously these are can be devastating cases where you're helping folks through. And I think we, sometimes we tend to get focused on the business side of the practice as, a, as compared to the professional side, and it's a good reminder to go back every once in a while and, and consider or think about what cases you feel strongly and feel passionately about.
1: I agree, Sean, and I just had an experience where it luckily paid off in the long run not only for, for me, but for a client and his family. It involved a terrible brain injury for a little boy, and there are some pretty strict confidentiality strings attached to the settlement that we were able to reach. But what what I can say is it was a case that came in and involved a recreational activity that I've got boys that are involved in and involved an injury that is happening a lot. And going back to the early 1900s, the Ohio Supreme Court, It basically said there's an assumption of risk if you are injured at one of these events, and there's just nothing you can do about it through the civil justice system. And, you know, it just didn't sit right with me. There had been other attempts in some other states to try and change things, and those had had failed. But I thought we had a a decent set of facts in this case. The kid was so horribly injured. I mean, he really is screwed for life that I thought, you know what, I— feel strongly about this. I'm going to take a flyer on it. You know, I really kind of expected to lose two years worth of time and and 20 to 30 grand in in expenses. But I thought, hey, let's let's take a chance. And luckily, we, we got a good draw with a judge. We got past summary judgment, which I think is the first case of that kind to get past summary judgment with the facts that we had. And then the insurance company said, let's go mediate and see if we can get the thing done. And And uh, luckily, we were able to do it in such a way that this kid really is going to have financial security for the rest of his life, even though he's going to have a very poor quality of life compared to what he would have had he not suffered this terrible injury. So, yeah, I agree with you. It's, It's good to be reminded that every once in a while we feel strongly about a case, even if it's outside of our normal sweet spot in terms of what we handle. Every once in a while, things work out, and we get the right judge, we get the right set of facts, and and we do it passionately enough that sometimes we can we can change the law for the better, and and even better help one of our clients, as we all represent, that that have had something horrible happen happen to them. So, yeah, that was a good reminder. Good reminder for me. It's refreshing to get a decent result on it when I really thought that we didn't have much of a chance at all, but just felt strongly about the issue. So it was. It was a fun case. It was a fun case to handle, and it certainly was a surprising and and very gratifying outcome, although I will say another reminder to all of us who do demands and send out those letters, and we get those economists, life care planners, and everyone else involved. I tell you what, no matter how much I try and counsel my clients not to believe that number that I put out there, and no matter how much I tell them to not to pay attention to what the economist is saying and and maybe what the life care planner is saying, they still take hold of those numbers. And I'll tell you that, that I really had some some terrible client control problems going into the mediation, at mediation, and even after we had settled following the mediation in terms of her, you know, wanting to, to kind of blow things up, even though we had achieved what, what I thought was really an incredible result. So, uh, a second lesson in there, I guess, for all of us that start with that client control from the beginning. And I had with her and told her that in all likelihood we would lose, and then you get this great pile of money on the table, and and suddenly they forget all the stuff you've been telling them. So a mm-hmm. uh, couple, couple of uh, hopefully a couple of reminders for all of us on on cases like that.
0: Yeah, I think I was absent the day in law school when they covered managing client expectations.
1: <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's it's so nice when you've got, and the majority of them, it's probably your experience too, the majority of, majority of them are so thankful and they'll, they'll do exactly what you say. Uh, no matter how much you tell them, it's your, your call. I'm just giving you the, the advice and the, you know, here are risks, here's the range, et cetera. Most of them say, well, what do you think? And then they follow your advice. But you do the same thing with others, and my goodness, there's nothing you can do to sometimes get
0: through to people. As soon as I figure out how to practice law without clients, I'll let you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. Turning from a good legal development with your your case and a a surprise successful result to maybe a bad legal development, that being Robinson versus Bates, and as anybody who does any kind of injury work knows, it's the bane of our existence. How, How do you deal with presenting medical bills in trial and medical negligence cases?
1: I think medical negligence cases are unique for the Robinson issue simply because we've got doctors on the stand, at least in most cases, we've got doctors and not nurses, but we've got doctors on the stand who have billed for their work. And I can tell you that, you know, I'm yet to go in in a case, sometimes I choose not to introduce the bills at all because of anchoring reasons, and I don't want a small number in there. But when that number is bigger, I can tell you that every single time I have asked a physician about whether or not the bill is reasonable, and I'm talking about the amount they billed, They all agree to it because what are they going to say, that they're overbilling or that they're unreasonable in terms of what they're charging? They can't possibly say that. And then, you know, I've even taken it a step further with them and said, I understand that sometimes you accept a lesser amount. And I've actually gotten into it in some trials where I brought up from Medicaid or Medicare, where we had circumstances that it's all over the medical records. You're going to wipe all this stuff out. People are going to surmise that they're on Medicare anyway. And I've taken it a step further and said, if anything, the reimbursement you get from some of those carriers is unreasonable. And they, of course, will agree with that because they can't stand how little they're reimbursed on the on the bills. Uh, and I can tell you that, that we have, when in those medical negligence cases where the jury is going with us, which, unfortunately, is not all of them, but when they are going with us and we are getting positive verdicts in our favor, I can tell you that usually what's come with it on the medical bill side has been the amount billed as opposed to the Robinson number. And we've really done more of a soft sell on it, and the defense hasn't touched it much after they've had their doctor really endorse that their bill is reasonable and that, if anything, it's those other lesser amounts that they accept that are unreasonable. So, again, just for those that do medical negligence, I think it's a different world than the regular injury world, for the Robinson debate, maybe a little bit more difficult to, to take that tact with non-defendant docs because I know the, the DME docs always just say, I don't know, I don't, I don't do the billing. You'd have to ask my office manager. So I, I think it's a little bit different than that context. But, but I think it's, it's worth at least considering because I don't think we have to, in the medical negligence world, simply give up on the amount billed versus that Robinson number.
0: Well, Mark Para, it's been a great talking with you. Thanks for joining us here on Civilly Speaking.
1: Thank you, Sean. I had a great time.
0: And for all our listeners out there, if you like the show, please check out civillyspeaking.com. And we're also on iTunes. Leave us a review. We appreciate it very much. And we'll see you all next time on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.